Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Welcome, Nikolai Pizarro, to the Let Him Go Barefoot podcast. I'm so grateful that you agreed to come on and talk to us about literacy, about raising readers, and about ensuring that we have the skills and the knowledge to help our children gain the skills and knowledge that they need to become readers. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> we have so many things to talk about. And I, as as we've talked about before, being kind of a science nerd and enjoying the specifics and research and, and what science has say, tell, told us about child development and about reading and about skill development, you have so much knowledge there. Um, you have so much direct experience working with families and kids and not just homeschool families, but families who have their kids in school, working with administrators. And I would love for us to be able to just dig into all of that, but also talk about how you got to this point. Yeah. I honestly don't know how we're going to get through this in the time <laughs> because I think we're both fangirling each, with each other and yeah. looking out on all of the things that we love. Um, but yeah, let me like my background it's going to take the whole thing. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Um, but yeah, I would say I, I'm a mother of two and a bonus child. Um, my son now is turning 15 next month. Um, it's really exciting because for his birthday, we will be in Brooklyn. Um, and we will be doing literacy workshops there for parents. So. <gasps> That's amazing. Oh, so, he's so adorable. Yeah, so that's what we're doing for his birthday. Really exciting. And um, I have a six-year-old and a partner and a dog and all of those wonderful things. And we live a very <laughs> privileged life because we get to um, – I know we're supposed to say – I just did a post about this. We're unschooling or homeschooling family, but really we just are our family. Right. Mm -hmm. We're just a family and we're really um, into creating home culture and 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 living and exist, you know, and co-creating our lives daily. So that's just beautiful to me. Um, as far as my professional background and this, you may not know, um, I am a banker by trade. <laughs> mm. So I have an MBA. Um, and so this is the other part that I love so much is that this work that I am doing, I do it completely in choice. And um, growing up, my aunt had a like tutoring service. She was, a, she still is a literacy professional. And then my neighbor had also was an English teacher and had a literacy um, tutoring service as, as she was a, a public school teacher as well. And so I was always around literacy and literacy tutoring. I was tutoring um, since I was in middle school and high school and then undergrad. And so this theme of literacy always kind of 
followed me. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I went to school for finance. And then at some point, which I'll share, I guess, later, I was like, you should do the things that you love and that where you feel that you have a significant contribution. And it was not in financial planning. (laughs) It was was not. (laughs) Um, And so that's what kind of led me into doing this work and choosing to do this work and um, serving, serving through it. So that's how we, you know, that's really why I do this. And since then, in the last 14 years, I have worked with about a little over 500 preschools, Head Starts, public schools. So organizationally about 500. Um, That has impacted well over 2,000 children. I have worked privately with about a a little over 100 um, families. So yeah, I have some skin in the game. Yes, yes, you do. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here you say you have the MBA background and banker. I went into college for accounting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I was just like, what am I doing? I'm so miserable. Not that I didn't love numbers and I enjoyed that whole thing because there was a structure to it and an order to it. And I do crave that sort of thing sometimes, but I also have a very creative side and long story short, I ended up in psychology and then went into education. But, um, so that's interesting that you started out with that, that direction. And and I want to say this too. It's so interesting because people say like, why did you go into like, why banking out of everything? And it leads us back to this, um, centering humanity and, you know, some other things that we were going to talk, probably talk about, but growing up, my neighbor, the one um, that had a tutoring center, uh, her daughter was a med school student. And she, since I would hang out there and help, she said, I can teach you how to do math really well. And she was who introduced me to algebra and then pre- algebra two and then um, pre-calculus and calculus. And she taught me how to do it well and how she sold it to me. The interest was it's big, big problems that you can then get to isolate Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, variables and solve them and or other systems of equations, like different things. And she would say, just it's just about training your brain to not be overwhelmed by really big things that people don't know how to solve. And then you finding a system to get to the solution of a problem. And that idea was so attractive to me because I was around a lot of trauma Mm. in, in my young, you know, my childhood. And because there were a lot of things that I wanted to, (laughs) there was big things that I would want to solve. And there were a lot of unknowns and it was complicated. My environment was very complicated. It a- appealed to me. It gave me, it was almost like the closest thing that I had to therapy um, to be able to have somebody walk me through solving problems. And so when I 
when I, because I was so good at it, but nobody knew because I was not on the college track in my, in my school, or I didn't have the kind of background where any educator would say, oh, this is the person that's going to go to an Ivy League school. I just didn't have that. And so I was not in the math track, you know, how they mm-hmm. put kids in like math track or this or that. When I got <clears throat> admitted into school, the teachers did not believe me. And they asked, I will never forget the teacher that asked me to bring in my admissions papers because I was admitted into University of Chicago. And and, and your, which teacher asked you to bring those in after you registered for your classes? There was a professor that... That was a high school. No, it was my high school teacher. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So yes. Okay. So you were admitted and then your high school teacher said... Almost like, no way. Like, you you must mean another school. And I was like, no, this is the school that I'm going to. Oh, wow. And um, because nobody just, I was just flying on the radar. I was just, um, so I I tell, before I was into unschooling or self-directed learning or creating like alternative high school portfolios, I was already doing it. (laughs) Before I knew Mm -hmm. that they, they happened, I was already doing them. Um, because, and this is also why I credit community to everything, because the reason that I got into that school was not my school. The reason that I got to my school was because my neighbor was a tutoring center and her daughter taught me to do math really, really well. And so when I applied, I said, Hey, this is who I am. I'm an atypical student. Look at what my scores are like. I got there not because of my school, as you can tell, not because of my classes, as you can tell, but because of like this inherent worth that that I have and this contribution that I'm able to to make. And that's how I got into a very prestigious undergrad. Yeah. And so yeah. I believe in community and in taking our children, taking care of our children in community and developing our youth um, that way. So before mm-hmm. I understood what I <laughs> came to do now, um, I felt like I was on that path very, very young. And additionally, the only reason that I did my MBA, it's because I got into school in a very self, into graduate school in a very self-directed manner. And I was 20 years old with a full academic scholarship to this MBA program, and the admissions person said, this is a top 20 program, and you're the youngest person in here, and you're going to have to prove yourself. And I would say you're going to be met with some hostility, so I would pick the most difficult major. Hmm. And so I was like, okay. So I picked finance and game theory. Wow. Not because I necessarily wanted to go into finance, but because I had to prove that I had some kind of inherent worth and should be there. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. And so I did that for a few years. And then when I no longer felt like I had to prove myself, I said, let me just go do what I love, what, <laughs> yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> right. So do you think that that shift came because you, in your own mind, you, you feel like you did kind of check a box that you needed to check for yourself. No, um, and you gave yourself space to say, you know what, I've done what I needed to do. I can leave this now. Or like, how did you make kind the of, shift? Yeah. 
Well, I was managing a, during tax season, I would manage a franchise for um, like a tax refund franchise. Mm -hmm. For 16 weeks, I made an incredible amount of money for managing a franchise and for 16 weeks of work. And I was on the third year, I was pregnant and I started looking at early brain signs. And then once I saw early brain signs, I realized, holy smokes, I am the data, Mm. right? I'm looking at all of these. I'm looking at this from a privileged position at this point, educated, have some amount of money. My child is going to do well (laughs) in life. But the more that I, and so I was reading all of these brain signs and baby books and all of this enrichment stuff, and they're all written and built everything that we know about enrichment and early child brain development, all of that is all built off of studies from low income black families for the most part. Mm. And the early interventions that were done. And then those children have been followed right for 40 years. So we have these six, we had these 60 years of data, but and the impact of early brain science, which now led to this market of enrichment that was available to educated upper class families, but really built on low income black families for the most part and 60 years of following them around and seeing, hey, if you don't do, if you don't replicate these conditions and you don't do what these things you, right. If you don't do these things, mm-hmm. your children, this is this is how all of the knowledge of early brain science that we have. Right. And I realized that I was the data because very early on in my household, I was given some kind of scholarship and I went to Montessori school. Um, as in preschool and lower elementary school, and that single handedly made all of the difference. From myself, my peers, my siblings, my cousins, like it made all of the difference. It, it it changed who I was. And then again, in adolescence with my neighbor. Right. And so I was, I saw the data in those studies reflected in my life and my outcomes and the power that I now had And I wanted to not just use that to impact my child, but I realized, well, I see, like, I don't want just my community to be the data. (laughs) I need Mm. the data to be shared. Right. To impact them in a positive way. Yeah. Like, we should know that. Like, it shouldn't be just Mm -hmm. like our demographic, the demographic that I am a part of now and like academics talking about this, but I need this to be like more race and class accessible. That's how I wrote. um, So at this time, before I even wrote the book. um, So after tax season, all of those buildings that um, all of the buildings where people go do rapid refund taxes and all of that, like they just go dead, right? Nothing happens. Okay. Yep. And I had all this access to demographics. So I knew where all the moms were 
in like low income neighborhoods that had babies. Mm. And I started targeting them <laughs> and saying, hey, do you want to learn early brain science and like how to make an impact with your children in the first five years? And we started doing classes in those offices. Oh, gosh, that's great. And um, at some point, and that's really when I fell in love, when I was like, this is really what I need to be doing. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so my mother got sick at some point. I went and took care of her. She has MS. I went and took care of her for a year. Um, she went to remission. And all of these moms were calling me. <laughs> they were saying such and such has had a baby or such and such is three and we need to do more. And I was like, you know what, what do I do? And I wrote a book, which my, my, I'm going to re-release it with updates because I'm a different person that I was 15 years ago when I wrote the book, yeah. <clears throat> but still that, that need to share in a way that was racing class relevant and that made things more accessible to other people. Um, became really important to me. Um, and so that was the shift. The shift is that anything mm -hmm. that I want for my child, I want for other children. Mm. And so it was, it was a sense of urgency because I was like, you know what, my son, my, my son doing well because of who I am does us nothing. It does nothing for him if his peers are not doing well. So what are we right. doing here? Right. It's like, it's mm -hmm. so, um, really, I always tell him that he gave me my purpose mm. <laughs> because he was like, it was that fire literally in my belly that I was saying it's not enough for him to do well. I need to, you know, because of him, I stumbled across brain science and I saw myself in that data and I was inspired to share with others. So it, it always comes back to him. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing what our kids can do? Yeah. They, just, they really do. Can, they can unlock things in us that we didn't even know were there. And I, I just listening to your story, you know, I just see bridges all over the place and you just connecting people to information and each other and themselves and saying, you know what, you're capable. Like if you just had these pieces of information, or maybe if you understood this a little bit more clearly, then it would be very simple and easy for you to implement in your own home and reframe the way you've learned how to be in relation with your children. Or yeah. maybe there was something you learned growing up and then you were trying, you're replicating that at home, but it's not helpful. And I, I was, I was just wondering, like I'm visualizing you in a classroom with these moms and do you, did you see like the light bulb moment oh Did my goodness parents yeah yeah so I much imagine. I mean the grief cycle for one oh yeah it's mm -hmm. real like crying mm -hmm. hugging loving like reparenting all of it before I need before we even had like the language all yeah. of that has always happened in real time um it's so powerful it's so beautiful um, it restores your, like your hope in humanity. Mm -hmm. And also again, how capable we are, but yeah, we see it all. We saw all the time and you, you expose people with care, not, this is a thing. 
a lot of organizations that set up and give services to certain communities do it from displace the parent, even in the intervention, because they're, they'll just do services for the children, right? We think mm. that these children yeah. need services and so we will provide them, right? And that's what the grant and that's what the building, that's what the program does. But my lens was, that's not what I want, right? And when I, mm-hmm. I as an educated um, mother, and with a certain amount of influence, like affluence, I am given the information and I am trusted, right? It's us, like we're doing it. Yeah. And so just because other parents were low income, low education, low whatever, um, black, um, brown, immigrant, right? I, I still felt like they, those mothers, predominantly mothers, I still trusted them. I still saw them. I saw them as a resource and I just wanted them to have their information and to do um, yeah. the same way that somebody else was trusting me to do. Mm-hmm. And- when it's the, it's the idea too, that like you were saying with the services that are, can be available, it's not a systems approach. It's more of an individual. And so they're separating the kids from the family, which is where the kids then have to go back to. And it's like, this is not helping everyone because you're dividing them up. And the, the information would be better served if everybody got to be involved. Yeah. So it's kind of like from my lens, from psychology and counseling and therapy and stuff, it's like, you know, taking the children to a therapist, but the parents not getting any help. No. <laughs> and it's like, you're not supposed to give it to the kids. It's not their responsibility to carry that burden and to try to fix everything or try to work the relationship out with the parents. So it's the same kind of idea. Absolutely. And if we think about it from like an evolutionary standpoint, We are supposed to be learning from our parents. Mm. We're supposed to be learning from our parents. And so that is why mammals, I mean, that is why humans, we're the only mammals that like end up staying with our parents for long, long periods of time, right? We're supposed to be learning and being nurtured and cared for and passing down information from our primary caregivers. And so- Anytime that you're creating separation of services, you are sending the signal to the minor, you cannot learn from this primary caregiver. Mm. So now, even if you're nurturing that young person, you're still sending the message that your primary caregiver does not have what you need to learn, what you need to be okay Now, if we think about that from a brain science perspective, that in every single case, for the most part, is a signal that Mm. says you're not safe. You're not safe here. Yep. You're not safe. And so if you are not safe, (laughs) then I cannot fully um, expect you to learn to be self-regulated, to have a regulated nervous system, to access your frontal cortex, to do all of the things. I can't, I'm not really nurturing you to your potential, but when I equip your parent and your primary caregivers, and now you're getting a lot of that from your parent, primary caregiver, then I am at a very baseline um, signaling now you are safe. Mm-hmm. When that leads beautifully into 
the things that you write about on your Instagram page at rating re- raising readers um, about home as epicenter, yeah, and centering um, our children instead of the school system, yeah. And I would love to dig into that a little bit more. But before we do that, I do want to highlight a post you made on March seventeenth that said, we cannot afford to center schools as the solution in a problem they created and are not even willing to be transparent about. And, you know, that's just, I love it. It's just so true. It's like, wait a minute, we're going to go to the people who've created the problem to come up with a solution. No, thank you. And, and I, I maybe missed this. If you said this earlier, apologies, but did you say you have homeschooled from the beginning or you started out with kids in school and then you pulled them home? Yeah, well, uh, my, I went. My son went to kindergarten for all of six months, mm-hmm. and let me say, he went in there reading, writing, doing math. You know, quote unquote, at second grade level. Okay. By the time that we left in winter break, my son had uh, dysgraphia. He would Ooh. would not hold a pencil. He would not scribble his name. We had to work for almost a year of therapy before he would write. Mm. And so we left, um, not by choice, but rather what, what I had to do because I was losing my son. Mm. Um, I was losing his light. I was losing, and I was losing him. Actually, his, his teacher, <laughs> she was like, I need to meet with you after school, unofficial. And she says, and she said that we, I'll never forget, we met at a Chick-fil-A. We're in Atlanta. We met at a Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. on a Friday night. And she said, we have single-handedly broken him. Oh. And she was like, I don't know what to say other than I don't think you should come back after the spring break because oh my now gosh. they're asking me to put him through the IP program mm-hmm. and to document all of his behavior. But I know that we have caused it. <gasps> and she's like, and now I used to have like all these brilliant passages and all these things. She was like, I'd recommend him for the gifted program because I can't mm. support him in my classroom. And now because he has regressed so much, I have nothing to submit. And it reiterates what they want which is for me to say, he's not producing, he's not doing his work, he can't write. She was like, but that's not how he came in. Oh gosh, that breaks my heart. And so we left and it was very much um, a survival thing. Um, Mm -hmm. It it very much like, I was like, okay, so now now I have to homeschool. (laughs) It wasn't anything that I had planned. I always just plan on just being like an advocate inside of school and centering my home as the center of learning and all of the things that I talk about. I always was thinking that I would decenter schooling um, and center myself, but very much as a school school parent, like I definitely thought I was going to be like an agent of change inside of school. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things. I was about volunteering, doing literacy interventions inside my son's classroom. Um, I was doing a lot of that. And that's how I saw myself, but we were just, it was not the place for him. Um, yeah. 
it was really, he was just like, I just don't, everything that I do makes everyone sad. Mm. Everything that I write makes everyone sad. Um, and it and was, he was five? He said five? Yeah. Wow. Um, the teacher that I had was a Teach for America um, first year teacher. And she would um, really quick, these are the kinds of things that I just want to share because parents sometimes don't think about how they can impact our children. But um, she, she would have him, he would write, but he did not have a spelling. He did not have like a spelling framework yet because he was only five, right? Mm-hmm. But his sentences were complex sentences with complex vocabulary. And so a part of the morning routine in kindergarten is to like write your little sentence, your little part um, picture, and then you would go to like a word wall, find the words that you want to correct. Most kindergartners are writing the same words. (laughs) And so they would correct it. And then when they would make their corrections and then they would go sit on the carpet. My son was writing words like artillery and, oh. you know, and like unnecessarily, and he was writing all of these words. And so when he would go to the word wall, he would not see those frequently used words. And so day after day after day, she would write, she would do an unhappy face. Oh, no. Because she was saying like, he was not completing his work. He was not doing the second step where he would edit and then go sit on the carpet. And he's like, mom, like my words are not there and I do not know how to fix them. Mm -mm. And so he internalized that as when I write, the teacher is unhappy. Yeah, of course. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, because they would never send that work home, he was not communicating that to me. And by the time we put that connection together, um, he had already given up on writing. Oh, yeah. In that s- small amount of time. That's what I find important to impress upon people is how quickly for some kids you can extinguish that flame. Oh, it was like very, very easy, very quickly. And because he had never been to, um, he had never been to preschool and because his personality is so pleasant, <laughs> mm-hmm. everyone kept telling me he's going to come around even though he was crying. And also we, we came from a different kind of background where like, so he would see kids sitting on timeout and he would go sit with them <laughs> oh. or he would say, please. It's like they're lonely. Yeah. He's just like, or he would tell the teacher like, Oh, such and such has had silent lunch for two weeks. Maybe, maybe that's not the solution. Like it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would, you know, he would correct, he would do those kinds of things that are not really a lot, you know, that's not what schools are for. And so he was just like, every time I say something, there's an adult that gets upset. Like it just really, and it just killed his light. Mm. But they just kept telling him me, he's so sweet. Just, he's going to adapt. He's fine. Um, because it was never like a violent thing or he was never, he didn't curse. He didn't hit anybody. You know, those kinds of things where people would want them out of their school. Mm -hmm. Um, so they kept telling him, Oh, he's going to come around. But what happened was the, the total opposite. Right. 
Well, and, and I think that's important to highlight as well is that some kids are externalizers and some kids are internalizers. And the ones that are externalizers are the ones that are going to get a lot more attention and probably reaction from teachers because they're creating chaos in the classroom, but they're calling out for help. Yeah. And the kids who are internalizers aren't going to make the chaos. They're not going to call out for help, but they're going to shut down inside. But to the outside eye or the untrained eye, they're fine. They're not causing problems. Yeah. <laughs> but inside it's like, oh, well, actually there's a lot going on in there. And unfortunately they get misdiagnosed or overlooked or considered to be okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so to circle that back to home as the epicenter, I think that the disconnect or how we can counter that is to really create home cultures where we are as parents seeing ourselves as guides mm. and seeing ourselves as being assigned to have relationship with our children and to lead with connection and to lead with healing and to do all of those things, the learning, the healing, the connection, the relationship, to really see that as the function of our homes. A lot of the current lens is to send our children to school, to center school performance and some elusive hypothetical job Thing that's going to happen in the future and some college application that's going to happen in the future as if we know that these things are going to happen. Um, and so that has become the function of our homes and our families and our roles as parents. And so what I am calling for or the invitation um, that I make to parents, which is the same invitation that I make to myself and my partner every day, is to lead with connection, humanity, and what is true of our home culture and our assignment, which is to to live. Yeah, yeah, and to and to and to hear the the various voices. Yeah, and to ensure that you're providing opportunities and resources to help them develop the skills that they need when they do leave your home, awesome. and that they can be using the whole time. So I, I, I'm with you with this idea that, of people thinking so much about the future that they kind of forget about the now. It's the fear of what if, what if, or am I doing this right? Or what about, where it's like, what about college? What about the job? What about living independently? And I think what people fail to recognize is the connection between that home as a safe, nurturing, connected place will inevitably lead to all those things that they feel like they need to think about now in a much more conscious way. Yeah. And that our children will take direction. And if we are, again, it goes back to our evolutionary function. If we can't provide that, then our young people are always on alert because they're supposed to be getting that from their primary mm. campers and then we're not giving them that. So really we're, the humans have evolved over hundreds and thousands of years and we're single-handedly like violating our evolution evolutionary advantage what allows us as humans to innovate is that we're passing down information in safety first so as mm -hmm. we're safe 
then we're passing on information and then we're a lot and then we dig into this like beautiful ability to innovate and to do other things with this information and then to pass that down like that's what gives us like a evolutionary advantage and the collaboration piece of it yeah and if so if the belonging to the connection and then the collaboration is not there um this is like what have we done but regress humanity mm-hmm. and so, it's like everybody's on their own little island trying to figure it all out when would really we could just be like come over here let's all be on the same island yeah <laughs> and then, you know share our resources and our experiences and have conversation and it's the equivalent of, I tell people, even like to bring it a little bit back to literacy, um, you know, it's like, what if, I'm really silly like this, but I live in complete awe of a lot of things. So like <laughs> all, good. all day long, like I will look at a sweet potato and be like, I cannot believe somebody dug this up, cured it, <laughs> right? Because you got to dig up the sweet potato and then it has to mm-hmm. cure, right? They have to cure, you got to put it in a cellar for like six months. And then you have to put some heat into it and some seasoning and so that you can even eat it. So the fact that that is like, that's a lot of people. It took some people to figure that out, right? Right. Um, If it was just me in charge of humanity, we would be eating like three berries (laughs) and some apples, okay? (laughs) I would have to bark, right. Bark bark off the tree. Is this okay? Can we do that? Yeah, and so the fact that even like from like a sweet potato to like email attachments, I'm like, I cannot believe that I have it and you have it. Mm-hmm. Like I just created it and I hit the little paper clip and now we both have it. Um, and like Google Docs and you're like, and now you made a change and it's over here. Like I am in awe of everything all the time. So it's the equivalent like of us saying, We have, and then the beautiful thing is that we have created this units, right? These communities or like in our current like context is family units for more of that transfer to happen Mm -hmm. and for us to reject that, (laughs) for us to like reject that and not be like passing on our stories, passing down the things that we know, um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense and saying, well, we're going to just like um, worry about the future. We're going to send you to a school. The state is going to teach you these things, not me, um, or I'm not going to, I'm going to keep you home and not, you know, and not share information with you because you're going to have to learn like from your environment and all of these disconnections is mm-hmm. like, this is the opposite of what we have evolved. Um, so right. let's get back to safety and connection and transfer of information, right. which sometimes I, like for literacy can look like direct instruction. Right. And I'm glad you did that because that's, that's where I was going with that. It says I wanted to get into the literacy piece of it. Um, but before I do that, I want to say that in the ideal world, our schools would be like many communities that we all worked together in service and support of strengthening our communities. And I believe that the reason why we're seeing the mass exodus that we're seeing from public schools, from private schools even, is just that families are starting to want to take back their families and realizing that there are ways 
to go about educating our kids and supporting their future that does not require so much separation, so much stress, so much anxiety, and so much dependent on the state when in fact what we know from plenty of data, plenty of research, the Department of Education has an amazing site that you can go on and look at all the numbers that says that they're not doing so great. And almost anything (laughs) across the board, if you had a company that made a product that constantly at the end of the the line, the product came out and it was at basic level, we would probably say that company shouldn't be in business. Um, You know, and yet we continue to pour money, 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 money into our public schools. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have public schools. I want to make sure that it's clear. What I'm saying is I think we need to really be honest about what is happening and how to shift and change and, and even participate in a way that makes it so that we're helping the kids do what they need to do, which is to become more literate. Yeah. Um, we're not being honest. Right. And so it's not just money that we're pouring it's belief. Right. Mm. So I think I tell people all the time that I don't necessarily think that all of the, the danger is in the participating because we're all participating in flawed systems. We go to work. Mm. I mean, we're always mm-hmm. participating in flawed systems, but it's the belief, right? If I am, um, my brother has a, an advisor that says, look, I have an, I have an attorney and then I have an attorney that helps me like look out for that attorney. I have an accountant and I have an accountant that lets me look out for that accountant. Yeah. And so even if you have to participate, it is not in the participation, it's in the centering, it's in the believing. It's mm-hmm. in, I remember when I was young, um, there was a moment where I stopped trusting my mother and I we don't have time to go into it, but I remember being around 13 years old and deciding that my mother was not somebody that I can trust because she was centering schools and things that teachers were saying. And I knew that I couldn't trust them because they were lying. Mm. And so then I graduate and I'm 16, 17, 18, living in the world still as a very young person. And things are happening to me and I'm not coming to my mother. <laughs> I don't have mm-hmm. adults that I'm coming back to and I'm making decisions that were, and I'm in positions that I am in the world because I don't trust my parents. Right. I don't trust my parents because my parents were centering schools and I knew that schools were lying. And so the it's not the participation, but also it's in not being honest with ourselves and then also not being honest with our young people because if we're not honest with our young people, then we're not deserving of their trust. Mm. And so if we want to be deserving of their trust and we want to be able to direct them and we want to be able to like share, it's just like we said, like share this, the things that we have learned that we know that work, then we have to, we have to be worthy of them. And the way that we do that is that we have to be honest. So if we're not being honest about what is happening in schools, then we can't trust those institutions. And if as parents, we're 
we're, we're not being honest about that either <laughs> and how mm-hmm. we're processing that, then our, the youth, the young people cannot trust us. And, that well, and they dangerous. can see through it. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and that's dangerous. Oh, yeah. Right, it's very yeah. dangerous. And so to me, is like, not only do we have to participate and be honest about it, but I don't, I know that the agents are not being honest. I know that, I don't know what, I work with teachers that know that things are not happening inside the schools and yet they still send them (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they cannot, you know, it's like, I always say it is a case of the emperor's new clothes where everybody Mm -hmm. is seeing the people, everybody that's the emperor is sending all of his workers down to look at the, the people like making the clothes and everybody's like, I don't see clothes. Yeah. And everybody's like, Hey, the clothes look great. (laughs) And that's, we're in, we're, we're just stuck in that. And even down to when the emperor goes down to the parade and a kid calls him out and says, (laughs) the emperor in the original story, the emperor realizes that he is. And he says, but we're still going to do the parade. I'm just going to pretend. Oh yeah. And so I'm like, we're just, this is just what it is. Mm-hmm. we're just when I love that the kid calls it out because I do think our kids do call it out and I do think they they say things they show us what they need based on their behavior whether that's I don't want to go to school today my stomach hurts I don't I don't I'm feeling nervous I'm breaking you know, whatever all the pencils. it is <laughs> like yeah yeah I'm breaking all the pencils and we're like why are they why are they acting this way it's like it's almost mm-hmm. like they don't want to be there it's almost like they're saying somebody's lying it's some you mm-hmm. know um and I think we have to listen to that um but yeah, so the reason that I said we can't afford to center schools as the solution is that we just have to be honest and say there's no way, like there's just no way that even in the current environment with Soul the Story, for those who have heard that podcast, where, you know, we're saying the schools are finally saying, oh, you know what, for the last 25, 30 years, we have not been teaching kids to read. Um, about 60% of the population is reading below grade level. And we see it. It's like, we know that we have a huge, it's not just in the kids. This is the other thing. So we're keep saying that this is the students, right? But if it's 25 to 30 years, then we're really looking at the population because these kids are now adults, right? So we're, we're looking at people that are working it's 60%. <laughs> it's 60%, period, right? So we're looking at people in all kinds of fields um, that have, we have a comprehension problem, which leads to being reactive with, with news. Mm-hmm. It leads to a lack of empathy. It le- leads to we're not listening to each other. So we see it reflected in the population, for sure. And so we for have sure. to call it out. Um, and so it's not, we're calling it out, but we're just like acting, the schools are acting like, oh, so this is a K through third problem. And you're like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to mm-hmm. call it out as a country and say, we have a huge problem with comprehension as a country. It's happening in the middle school and high school level. It's going on at the, you know, at higher ed. It's, going on here at it's some of your teachers who have Mm -hmm. a a comprehension issue um 
and you are not going to solve it. I've had so many parents that I work with now, they're saying, I'm learning more in your cohort than I'm learning or than any of the op- updates that my child's school is giving me. All they're saying is, well, just read to your children and do, you know, do the homework. And that's kind of what we've been doing and how we got into this mess. Yeah. Well, we keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, right? And that they say the definition of insanity. Well, and it's also the part of we can't we can't not have school, so therefore we just have to keep doing it. And it's like that's fine. Okay, we need education. We need a place for our children to be that's safe and 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 available and offers a skill development. But then let's just like you said, be honest about what's not working. And stop trying to do the same thing just with more money or or more training or whatever you think it is. I mean, we've been at this public school thing for well over, what, 200 years now? And we have a bunch of children and adults who can't read. Like, yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's an obvious, that's an obvious red flag. Yeah, and we can't even, I mean, we're just not even, we're not even, even the school's saying, oh, we got it wrong. And then pretending like they can get it right. There's 1.5 million elementary school teachers. There's no training mechanism to train 1.5 million elementary school teachers in one, two, three years. There's not. And so there's no way to, there's like, I think 90,000 elementary schools. There's no one's going to supply curriculum and PD for all of those teachers. And so I think that the responsible thing to do is to talk to parents and say, in communities and say, at this point, we have to do things at a community level. We have to do things at a parent level. We have to do things at a home level. But if we dare to say that, then we will be displacing, they, schools feel, this is not even the truth, but schools feel like they would be displaced <laughs> and because they don't want to be displaced, they're not willing to say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to read this uh, quote from your February 27th post that says, I believe it is criminal that any child be forced to go to school for years and not be guaranteed a degree of literacy, numeracy, and real government and history understanding. And I'm, I think everybody who has been through school can attest they had plenty of things that they spent hours on or were required to do. And that's why it's like a joke that there's a TV show, like smarter. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? I'm like, to me, it's not funny. Yeah. Okay. We can laugh about it. We can see the joke there, but that to me just speaks volumes about why, what is being taught doesn't have the relevancy that it needs. So if you're having an adult person go up against a fifth grader and you you can't answer the questions that the fifth graders can answer, it's all about that being relevant, right? It's like, okay, well, you're learning this right now, so you know this information right now, but you're not going to take it with you. Yeah. We're making that abundantly clear. So um, I do want to dig into the literacy part because what you've been able to do and what you have, what you're working on now and what you offer to to families and parents now. And I just want to say as well, the Solda story, if you, if people have not heard that to please go listen to it, it's a six part series. Um, that was by, is it American public media? I think that's, yeah. I think that's who did it. Mm-hmm. And um, they just go through all of the 
literacy training and the money that has been spent and how all these families started recognizing that their children have been in school and they can't read. And, and it, it's, it's fascinating. And it also might make you mad too. <laughs> yeah. Well, it should um, make you mad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so getting back to the literacy part, that's the other thing that you say on, on your Instagram page is that, you know, it's not just about the homeschooling parent. It's about everybody. And it's about decentering school so that you can center the kids' education. So you help families who have children in school. So can you talk to us about the ways that you approach literacy and how you're able to provide this instruction for teachers and preschool teachers and administrators that have them coming to you to say, you know, I can't believe this, but you've given me more information than I've had in all my other personal development training. Yeah. Well, to summarize it, I, I think back on being a tutor as a middle schooler and as a high schooler in these tutoring services. And the fact that we as a community, particularly black indigenous communities, we have taught each other how to read. Um, And I say in some ways, this is where we have an advantage because we can call that in. Um, Mm. uh, We can call that in. We have to remember that. We have to remember, but we can call it in because we have literacy instruction has not always been legal and accessible for us, but we have done it in community before and we have done it as an act of resistance before. And so how we did it was not like, through desire and, and access through print. Um, we had desire and there was print mm-hmm. everywhere in this country. Like how we did it was somebody who knew how to read taught the other one, right? Or we did it in community. And so their principles, right? There's just went out before my aunt and my neighbor allowed me to do tutoring of other children. They both certified me quote unquote right <laughs> so when people are like who are you certified with i'm like uh my auntie and my neighbor <laughs> they have i've been doing this since i was 12 okay so um back then before we called this science of reading it was five pillars of literacy and we did phonics instruction phonological awareness vocabulary development you know reading comprehension and fluency and that's kind of like what we learned how I'm, I'm saying like, I'm 43. I've been doing this since I was 12 mm. um, and have been teaching preschoolers and regular schoolers and adults, right? And so now a lot of the stuff that I look at because I love science of reading, not science of reading like teacher paid teacher templates, science of reading, like what we're reducing science of reading because now it's like a trending thing. Mm-hmm. The actual yep. science of reading that has happened inside of people are also saying, oh, science of reading is for school-aged children. It's not. The science of reading is actual cognitive science and neuroscience that you can go and look at. And we have now imaging of what happens inside the brain with reading in multiple languages, in adults, in people who have been in car accidents or have had trauma and half of their brain stops working. And so we have all of this science. And so it's not just phonics and, you know, we have 
turn this into curriculum in phonics inside of schools. And that's like the buzz. But the science of reading really is like 70 years of data of the circuits and the process by which brains read. And there's two systems, which is one, you know, that creates meaning and another one that uses sounds and letters, you know, phonics. And Mm -hmm. so if you develop both in a particular order and through also through spelling, which informs, um, then you can have proficiency in reading and, and there's, there's a way to do that. It doesn't have to look like what it looks like in school, but it is, it is systemic. And I just, I just share it with parents and I have done this with parents that have college degrees. And I have also done it with parents that are low literacy parents themselves. Like I will never forget Brian's, I forget the actual parent. It was a grandmother, but the child was Brian. And she said, I want you to do it, Miss Nikolai, because I mm-hmm. have custody of him, but I don't read. And I was like, Aww. great. So now we'll learn together. <laughs> and I was like, I'm still going to teach you. And now you're going to learn. And then you're going to teach him for the same. And I told her the same thing that I shared with you. I said, because he's supposed to learn from his primary caregiver. He already has trauma because he's been removed from his parents and coming to you. So we need for him to be able to tap into safety. It would help if he's learning from his primary caregiver, which is you. So I'm going to teach you to do it. You're going to learn to read and you're going to do to him what I'm doing for you. Oh yeah. I love that. And so so powerful. Yeah. And we can do it. Mm-hmm. that's the thing that is powerful and that we can do it. And we don't need any one curriculum. Um, and it doesn't have to feel like drilling, kill and drill, whatever people call it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to look like school. But- or worksheets or workbooks or, I mean, unless the kid wants to, obviously it's like kind of that, that's where that interest in child-led peace can fall into theirs like where are they are naturally headed can we utilize what they're already interested in and some of it does require practice and it's difficult so Mm -hmm. I have like my my son needed zero help he was amazing just very a little bit of instruction and he was off very early reader and with my daughter she's like this feels really hard Mm. yeah now did you notice a difference in their ages like when they both sort of Oh, well, when my they... son, I mean, my son, so I've always taught them the letter sounds early, like through toddler, like just by pointing. So they already had mm-hmm. it. And I remember one time that I was like taking my son on a trip to the zoo. We were in a different city and it was going to be a surprise. And he said, ooh. <laughs> and he was like three. And he was just like, <laughs> and then we got, he was like, zoo, we're going to the zoo. Like, that's a surprise. He just knew it. And that was, he all of a sudden knew that if he put the sounds together that he can make words like he made that connection himself and then he just started asking me what's what's odd what like because he didn't have a picture of what these other sounds were Mm -hmm. and so by the time he was four he was completely fluent in reading my daughter 
she she had she can rhyme she can do all the things she has an extensive vocabulary but whatever we would she would pretend to read she just wasn't making that connection and I would tell her you know that these are the sounds that you know like they're the same things you just put them together and my son would be like uh, her name's Mabu so Mabu you just have to blend them to, like and she's like that feels really hard and she's mm-hmm. just like I don't want to learn for the longest and then she just turned six and recently one of the things that we do in my house is that one of our love languages between my, my, my son and I is that we read things together. So he'll read something and I'm reading the same text and we sit around and we just talk, right? So we have discussions on things that we've been reading and it's a way that we've always been able to remain relational. Mm -hmm. And so it might be something that I enjoy and I'll give it to him to read or he enjoys and he'll give it. And so now my daughter sees that she's not a part of that because she, she's not reading. Right. And so right. It, it has been, or maybe I, you know, while we're eating, we might share like a something that funny that we read or, you know, so we have these things that we have this connection piece and she is not a part of like that contribution. And so she's like, I'm ready. Let's do uh-huh. this. Like, <laughs> I, to, I want, I want you to show me how to do it. And mm-hmm. so when it gets tough, I'm like, you got to practice and it's not as easy for you and you practice, but we have a lot of evidence of a lot of things that we've done, like teaching her how to whistle or, um, the piano, like I, she's taken to it and I'm not, and she's teaching me and it's harder for me. And so we have a lot of evidence of things that we do, that we teach each other that are difficult, that challenge us and that we have to do it. Um, they're supporting me right now through like weight loss, which I haven't struggled with forever. And I have since 2020. And so join the club. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, so we have, because we have that vulnerability and because we, we are teaching each other things and we tackle difficult things together. Um, when I say, Hey, it's time to practice and it's difficult. I hold space, you know, compassionate witnessing, and then we regulate ourselves and we continue to practice. Um, so yeah, but it it still comes down to learning your sounds and having fluency. And, you know, if there's a word that you misspell to have a a spelling framework, (laughs) it's still, it's still, it's still what it is. It's not difficult. Um, but there are still things that you do and and they apply to children and to adults. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a, there's building blocks. It's, you know, like a child who learns to crawl belly, belly roll or scoot, then to crawl, then to, you know, take a couple of steps and then walk and then run. So I feel like when it comes to literacy, there's those steps that, that are taken naturally just as a human existing in the world they see words, they see print, they hear sounds, they sing songs, and they read books together. And all of those things are starting to build those connections. And as you're, as a parent or as an educator, you're helping them make those connections by consistently yeah, focusing literacy in your own home. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And you're building, yep. And you're building those. Here's what we we just don't have 
Um, if you if we don't equip parents or adults, caregivers, with what those skills are and what they look like, then the default is to one, do nothing mm. and pretend that it's just gonna happen or hope because somebody told us told us somebody told us that it would. And so because we don't know, that we'll like we'll believe that. <laughs> mm, um mm-hmm. and so but a person that knows would say mm, not really right um or somebody who only knows in a way that center school will say well you have to do it the school way but yeah we don't have it doesn't have to be either right but somebody you know we could just give the parents the skill so that they can do it in a way that centers humanity but that is based on science and it's succinct and, and, and it's in the service of the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and coming from that self-directed lens and unschooling mindset of child led, I know that there are some who have for sure seen their kids pick up reading when for them, it feels like they really didn't sit down and teach them all those skills directly. And then there's some kids who, it will take a little time. And from the brain science side of things, we know that kids develop at different rates. But I also think that there's a misunderstanding. There can be a misunderstanding that they'll just pick it up because you're a literate parent and you have books in your home and you read together and you watch, you watch shows or you listen to music or whatever the case may be, that eventually the kids are just going to connect all those dots together. And in some, in some cases they do. So what would you say in response to those who feel like they don't really need to do anything and they're just going to figure it out? Well, because I know, I know that has happened. I mean, we know that there are certain kids who just kind of pick it up on the earlier side, but so what, how would, how would we be able to support parents who may feel not very well equipped to look for the signs? Yeah. So there's a, there's a the science just says is there's about 10 percent of people who are going to 10 to 15 percent that are going to pick it up just by picking it up mm-hmm. so i'm i'm in a household where i have two children and one just picked it up <laughs> and yep. one didn't and so i i live that um so some children do, and some people were like, well, some, sometimes you just need a little bit of instruction, a little bit of nudging and support. And I think that we also have to understand that even the people that just picked it up or needed just that little bit of support, um, are, are literally, isn't it like after we read in third grade or fourth grade or whatever, like it stops. Right. And so there's, we haven't been at this unschooling thing for that long either. So I work with families that their children were reading when they were seven, eight, but now in high school, like the comprehension has gone down Hmm. or they're not that really good at writing. So you could even have a child that picks it up without that much directed instruction and then still hits some bumps later on because we're not really testing or looking for it or 
um, in, in, a, in a self-directed kind of environment because we're not mm-hmm. doing those things. Then later on, um, you could, you hit some hiccups and it's not that you're not capable of, but we also have to wonder like what more could they have been reading or have had access to or could have been writing or like if they would have had other skills and sometimes they get frustrated the young people will get frustrated or they feel limited and now you're dealing with like a motivated right you're dealing with a motivated older child that still is struggling and I, mm-hmm. I feel like, is that, was that a really a natural consequence? Like sometimes like when we, we want our children to learn from natural consequence, but is it a natural consequence that an older child is struggling because we were neglected to walk them through some direct instruction because right. we just didn't want to believe in direct instruction. I don't think that that's a natural consequence. I think no, this is very, very much I- an unnatural consequence. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it's, it's sometimes we have these things that we look out for these markers, if you will, that if they're doing this, this, or this, and they're fine, they're set, they're good to go. We really just need to back up and let them have their time and interact with information in the way that is, is the way they want to interact with it. When in fact, there's a potential for there to be met gaps in their skill set if we aren't checking in every so often. So it, for me, it's like, what I say with learning all the time, right? Learning never stops, but also with my children in the relationship, like I don't stop building my relationship with them. I didn't raise them up until about six, seven, eight years old. And and we had a great relationship at that point and say, okay, I've done everything I need to do. We're going to have a relationship that's great from here on out. Yeah. You know, it's a constant, you got to feed it, you got to nurture it. And the same thing is, with, is true with skill development. And, um, you know, it, when you said the thing about the competency piece, it made me think about self-determination theory and that um, life satisfaction is is greater for those who have competency, autonomy, and relatedness. So they've got that community piece, but they're also able to direct their lives and have a say-so, and there's buy-in, and then they also have the competency to handle themselves in multiple different environments and I think all of us want the best for our kids and they those those are some three big pieces that we can be thoughtful about and realize that if if they've got autonomy that's great don't just give them autonomy (laughs) or not give them you know what I mean like don't just think that oh they've got autonomy so they're good to go it's more like well what are they connected into a community do they feel like they belong somewhere? Do they feel like they contribute? And then where, what about their competency? So I say this from my own personal experience where at one point there was a time when I thought my son was good to go with his college level classes. And I realized that there were some pieces there that we kind of skipped over. And I was like, oh, you know, just because you're able to do this, this, and this doesn't mean you knew this piece. So we spent a lot more time focusing on some writing and some specific direct instruction and skills and essays. And then he was good to go. But because he was so fluent in reading and so fluent in speaking, 
did not automatically mean he was super fluent in writing. <laughs> yeah, no. And, you know? I, I, my so, son, not to cut you off, but my son, he was reading at college level very, very early. He's just like, he took off. But because mm-hmm. of the dysgraphia, um, for some years, we kind of backed out. And if I, if I, if I'm honest, if I left that up to him, he would forever like voice text <laughs> like he would mm. forever do he will forever do that and he would not build competency outside of the the tech and he even would avoid the text <laughs> if it wasn't mm-hmm. that um but I'm his parent and so I can hold space with him and we have been able to work through that and he's obviously I don't want to speak for him but it's something that we talk about all the time where he's very grateful, not in the moment, right? In the moment, oh. he's doesn't feel good. <laughs> and you know what? In the moment, I don't feel good about it either, right? But he's grateful that um, we just we we just going through something um, a few weeks ago, and he said, and I said, "Are we okay?" And we did a check in, and he said, "You just never write me off," and I feel like if you did not work on these things that are challenging to me, I would feel that you were writing me off. Mm. And you don't because you see so much potential. He's like, I think he's like, I'm really, really grateful for that. And so we, you know, we can step into that. There's so you, we want to work on skills. Like I still want to work on skills. I get really anxious around taxes right? I have a, ta- I have a coach <laughs> um, oh, uh, and uh, helps me yeah. walk through that because at 24 years old, I didn't know and I made too much money and I absorbed too much and I got a tax bill for a hundred thousand dollars. I'm still recovering. Oh, oh, um, I'm That's still recovering bad. from the year 2006. Okay. <laughs> from oh, from wow. the trauma of feeling like, Oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. How did I get myself into this? Hmm. And so I didn't look at it for three years. I mean, the, I did not have competency of mm-hmm. not of doing the taxes, but of handling the shock of handling. I did not have an emotional competency. Mm-hmm. So with our children, with our young people that are under our care, like, you know what you need to be successful in life. And it's okay to check in and check in for those skills. And there is a process to check in for those skills and they don't just happen. And um, it is not difficult, but it's, there's still a process, right? If I, like, if I put some flour and some butter on my counter, um, I'm not going to end up with a flaky croissant. And you know what? Even if I have a recipe, I'm not going to end up with a, I don't know if you've ever tried baking baking croissants. It is a skill. Okay. (laughs) And you need, I have never done it. (laughs) And you're going to need somebody to like walk you through that. And so literacy is not that literacy and it's not that it's hard. I wouldn't qualify as hard, but there are steps and there's a procedure. And so whether, whether we're doing it inside of school or inside of self-directed learning and community, um, it's okay. It's okay for mm-hmm. us to do it, and it involves some direct instruction, but um, it doesn't have to be um, – we can do it and still center humanity. 
And so yeah. that's what I, what, when I work with parents, that's what we do. We, yeah. I give them the game. <laughs> the blueprint is there and the blueprint has been there um, for a very, very long time. We have used it. Humanity has used it before schools were here and, you know, through this entire process we know a lot about it. We know science. We've seen a lot of science behind it and it has nothing to do with schooling. So let's lean into it. And it is criminal that anyone would, whatever the background, that would have a have children under their care, understanding how much literacy is a tool for liberation and for autonomy and for a lot of things um, in this cultural context and not make it a priority to give it to young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, with the direct instruction or giving, holding space for those times where you come together and really work on those specific skills. It's about that relationship that you've created where there's trust and respect and a very deep understanding that this is my parent pouring love into me. Yeah and giving me a gift and that that's okay. That it doesn't have to, we don't have to say, and we talked about this before we started recording. I'll just say that, that, you know, you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Like you don't have to say any instruction, any direct assistance is like taboo because that means you're not unschooling anymore. <laughs> and, or if you're, you're taking away from the child's self-direction because you're saying, these skills are important to have. I feel like if anything, we're ensuring that they will have success and feel good about their lives if they are able to develop the skills that are necessary to become an independent yeah. human being. I mean, whether it's, listen, whether it's even understanding feminism, right? <laughs> or privilege or this history of this land or like your rights in this country, right? Whether you're understanding government, I think all of those things are important. Numeracy, I think it's important. Literacy, I think it's important. When you leave my home, I want you to have these things. Mm. And I, it is important for you to have those things. And, and we're in relationship so that we can, and you're, we're here in an extended relationship, again, from evolutionary position, so that when you're leaving, it's no different than, you know, don't eat that berry. <laughs> like our ancestors yeah. are like, don't eat from that bush. <laughs> you will get a fever and you die. <laughs> like from our ability to pass on information um, so that from there that we can be empowered to, to be our full selves. And be right. able to express that. And so I think that that happens in relationship and that happens with deep respect. Um, and it should be happening in every household, you know, whether it's an unschooled family or, a, you know, a family that goes to schooling. It should not be a state. <laughs> it should not be handled, you know handled by the state. Um, not to say that we don't want schools and we don't want to hold schools responsible, but ultimately the more that we center ourselves, the more that we get to advocate for children, the more that we get to, um, empower our young people, the more that 
schooling, you know, and, and its metrics and the things that it upholds do not be become a part of our collective consciousness and, you know, things that are harmful. So I don't, mm-hmm. you know, if literacy is a tool for liberation, I don't think that the state is the person who's going to handle it very well. I definitely think, I think that, especially, and I say that, listen, I I say that from a race and class lens is the only lens that I have. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not going to leave it up to them to liberate me ever. So, and, or my children. And because I say everything that I want for myself, I want for other people's children, because there's no such thing as other people's children that work with parents. Yeah. That's wonderful. Nicolai, thank you. And if you will, just let everybody know where they can find you and also the various things that you offer, which are many and wonderful. Um, yeah. But I'd like for you to be the one that sort of directs people to where they where they can find things. Yeah. So um, Home as Epicenter is one of my hubs that deals directly with parents getting um, the skills that they need to teach reading and writing at home, basically, from a humanity centering lens. And they can do that um, in community too, because it's really important. I believe that this is community work. And so we come together in community, we do classes, we do self-directed videos, um, we answer questions. So those are cohorts and those are things that we do together where we're really leaning into empowering parents and caregivers rather um, to do literacy work at home and center themselves and, and also criticality and connection. So that's happening. Then the website is homeasepicenter.com. Okay. And, and so after that, my website is from high chair to freedom and it's really a continuation, you know, that's another hub where people can, can find me as well as on Instagram and on Instagram, I am at breezing readers and something that you will always find for the most part in, um, in my bio is a short, I think it's like under two hours, um, self-directed course on decentering school to center humanity. And I think that that's really important is the framework that I, it's trademark pending. And again, it's how to engage and participate in schooling, but still decenter schooling from home because at home we really have to center humanity relationship and learning. So those are the ways. That's great. And I'll be sure that they are available to everybody in the show notes. So are there any, any calls to action or parting words or specific resources other than your sites that you want to leave people with? Um, I would say to just come back to the remembering, like before, I think we have really, um, we have forgotten our evolutionary role to be in family units and to be in communities, which is to collaborate and to learn from each other and to really center ourselves and to make greater contributions and to innovate. Um, And we have just for too long centered this institution of schooling and it has impacted us. So, you know, 
like let's all have the courage to explore that conditioning a little bit more um, in defense of children and in defense of humanity. Thank you for spending time with us today. Please do check out Nikolai's work and websites. If you are interested in learning more about teaching literacy and supporting your own children, she has courses and coaching available. Also, if you haven't checked out the Barefoot Playground yet, we'd love to have you join us live in the coming weeks. Up next is Cindy Gaddis, author of The Right Side of Normal, who will be leading a discussion on how to support your right brain dominant creative learner's reading journey. That takes place Thursday, April the 20th. On Wednesday, April 26th, Ann Hansen of Inner Parent Coaching will join me to discuss the topic of socialization, including misconceptions, exploring the question, how many friends do our kids really need, and ways we have supported our own children through the years. You can find more at LetEmGoBarefoot.com or follow along on Instagram. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.